0: Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic.
1: This is a great pleasure. I'm talking today with uh, Professor Don Hoffman, who's an American cognitive psychologist and a popular science author. He is a professor up the road at the University of California, Irvine. He has joint appointments in the Department of Philosophy, the Department of Logic, and Philosophy of Science in the School of Computer Science. He's written many books. Today, we're going to be talking about a very provocative book called The Case Against Reality. And you can find some more information about him uh, on his TED Talk is really where i got introduced to him called do we see reality as it is you can find that wherever ted talks are sold don it's such a great <laughs> pleasure to uh to meet you uh, uh, videographically and elsewise uh how are you doing today
2: well thank you so much brian it's a great pleasure i'm doing very very well and it's a great pleasure to uh, talk with you thanks for this kind invitation
1: uh, the pleasure is truly all mine and uh, i followed you we have many friends in common we have many interests in common and the first thing I love to do, because uh, it's it's a nice way to kind of open up the conversation, is by doing what we're always advised never to do, which is to oh. judge a book by its cover. And I want to ask you how you came up with this very delightful, delicious, uh, delirium-inducing cover uh, image for The Case Against Reality. So if you're at home, folks, go to Amazon.com, buy a copy of the book, I can't recommend it highly enough. I just gave it a five-star review. It's got 534 five-star reviews and up. Anyway, Don, how would you come up with the, t- uh, the cover image and the title and subtitle? Because it's very provocative.
2: Uh, are you talking about the, the version in the United States from Norton? Yes. Or the, key, or the yes. Penguin? The, right. Uh, so the, that that is actually the, the brainchild of um, a guy named Haywood uh, Petri and uh bradley dumai so this is a well-known subjective necrcube that's been around for for since the 1976 1977 and so it was just adapted a little bit um for for the cover so so petri and bradley deserve all the all the credit for that um (laughs) it's, it's their brainchild and the title um yeah it's a bit provocative uh i do believe that there might be some kind of reality but the point is that what we take to be reality isn't the reality, and that's that's what the book is, is after. Whether there's a real reality beyond what we believe is an interesting and open question, but um, at least the space-time reality, space-time and physical objects, uh, that's where I think evolution might say that we need to rethink things.
1: Mm. And the subtitle is equally provocative in my opinion. The subtitle for those who aren't, uh, who haven't yet received the delivery in their Amazon real-time delivery system, which I'm sure will be coming any day now, uh, is the the subtitle is "Why Evolution Hid the Truth from Our Eyes." Now, Don, uh, I'm not that great a scientist, but I was always told <laughs> that science that science can't answer why questions. Um, why? Why did you use the word why? I always thought science answers how questions first of all. Well, where am I wrong?
2: Because <laughs> I'm sure I am. Right. So this has to do with the logic of evolution and evolutionary game theory. So in evolutionary game theory, we, we can actually ask the question technically, would natural selection – shape sensory systems of organ, organisms, like humans, but, but of any creatures? Would, would their sensory systems be shaped to tell them truths about objective reality, whatever objective reality might be? And that's, that's a question that we can ask uh, very precisely using evolutionary game theory. And the reason I can say why is because I can say why the logic of evolution itself entails the probability of zero that our sensory systems are shaped to see any structure of objective reality. So whatever objective reality might be, whatever structures it might have, um, one can prove, and this is work that's been done in collaboration with some of my graduate students and then uh, a mathematician. So the graduate students are Justin Mark and Brian Marion and and, and the mathematician uh, Chaitan Prakash and, and others that have worked with us on on this. And what what these simulations Illustrated, and what the mathematics proves is that the probability is precisely zero, that any structure of objective reality would be preserved in the sensory systems of any organisms by natural selection so we're going to be selected to see something or to perceive something the question is the structure of our perceptions will they somehow capture true structures in objective reality and the answer is no almost surely and so that's why evolution shapes us not to see reality um, because the probability is zero um, that it could and and we can go into why but the the real the 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 interesting reason to me is that you can think about evolution as like a game, like a video game, right? And and when you're playing the game, what you have to do is grab points as quickly as you can. If you get enough points in a short enough amount of time, then you can go on to the next level. Well, in, in Everyday life with natural selection, it's like a game, the, the fitness payoffs are the, the thing that sort of counts like the the points of the game. And if you get enough fitness payoffs, um, you don't go to the next level of the game, but your offspring, your genes go to the next level of the game. And, and, and so... So it turns out that the payoffs, when, when you look at the structure of these payoff functions in evolution, the payoff functions that are, again, like the, the rewards that you get in a video game, how many points you get for killing that, that alien or, or you know, driving that car that fast and so forth, all the points that you get, those payoff functions in evolutionary theory do depend on the state of the world and the structure of the world, but they also depend on the organism like a human versus a, a, a cow versus a, a lion, uh, its state, hungry versus sated, and the action, um, feeding, fighting, fleeing, and mating, uh, mm. the, the big um, uh, activities of life. And so it depends on all these things, including the structure and state of the world. However, when you what we did was a combinatorial study. We can ask how many, we can look at all the possible payoff functions, we can count them, and then we can ask, how many of those payoff functions would actually preserve a particular structure in the world, say a topology. We, we didn't do topology, but we did measurable structures, certain kinds of uh, groups, uh, and, and also uh, total orders. And what we find in each case is that the probability is precisely zero. Uh, a zero percent fraction of the um, total payoff functions would preserve the structure of the world. Hmm. So, so the bottom line is the reason why Evolution by natural selection does not shape us to see truth is because the payoff functions that guide evolution don't contain the truth, almost surely. That's why.
1: And when we think about truth, uh, of course, you know, the common parlance truth is subjective. There are alternative facts. There's fake news. Um, right. So there, there is sort of a, a theme running through the book of you know reality kind of being created as you say you know almost virtual reality without the virtual in other words we we sort of have this headset that we're uh, encased in and it's the overlay of perception i want to start uh, by going back to the beginning of all this at least in terms of both not only the scientific method but deep influence on me and on you i know for sure and that's this Finger puppet for those of you on Clubhouse cannot see. This is a finger puppet of Galileo Galilei yes. that I whip out on occasion. Uh, he's called the father of modern science, certainly, the father of modern astronomy. And folks like Edward Tufte and others have said that he was the first data scientist in that through his evocative sketches and drawings of the moon, he not only conveyed data, he conveyed emotion and senses and Mm -hmm. really this, this connection between the retina and the objects that he was depicting. To me, until I read your book, I'd heard this book by this guy, Goff, that we'll get into in a little bit, Mm -hmm. but how Galileo influenced some of the modern thinking about reality. First, can you say something about Galileo and how did he contribute to our sensation of reality and as perceived by sensorial uh, sensorial senses, for lack of a better word?
2: Right. Um, So Galileo actually made a very interesting distinction um, between what later became called primary and secondary qualities. Um, Primary qualities would be things that we think are part of objective reality, like um, maybe the shape of physical objects, the positions of physical objects in space and time. And then so those would be primary. And in some sense, those would be real. Um, And then there were things um, that... Or were called secondary qualities uh, that that Galileo he didn't use that term but but he was pointing in this direction Locke um, used that term and used of Locke and yeah, yeah. his his writings on this so things like taste and color in some sense you know a physicist might say look uh, 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 an object really does have a shape and a position, but it doesn't have a real color. In fact, light doesn't have color; it only has, say, wavelengths. And so, in that sense, when you see color, color is something that that you make up. It's not really part of the reality. The reality, in that case, would just be the wavelength of the light. And so, Galileo made made that that interesting distinction that he he said some of the things that we perceive are not the reality. You know, the real reality. They're they're just our contribution, but but, but I think that Galileo thought that other things like the positions and movements of objects, their masses and so forth, would be part of the objective reality, um, what was later called primary qualities. And, and the other thing that you know, I think many scientists would credit Galileo with was I mean, he understood about the importance of making very careful experimental measurements even about boring things i mean he was rolling balls down inclined planes and measuring how fast they moved you might go i mean if you're trying to understand the big questions of the universe why are you rolling balls down inclined planes and measuring how fast they move how how far removed from the interesting stuff is that But, but what galileo showed was by doing these very careful experiments with great precision and then trying to model mathematically what you've what you've seen, you start to make serious progress on the little things that eventually are the road to the bigger questions that you're interested in. Maybe we don't care about balls on inclined planes. But then we start learning about the deep, deep laws of nature. And then they start to open us up to new ways of thinking about what's going on. And that's the the big payoff.
1: Right. And of course, you know, I've talked about this in my book, Losing the Nobel Prize, that that Galileo is deeply influenced by the senses. And in fact, in one of the passages that, that Tufti, I think I'm pronouncing, I never know how to pronounce his name. Is that right, John Tufti? <laughs> Tuft. Tuft. There's, a, there's a famous physicist, Ed Hooft, uh, who won the Nobel Prize. I'm trying to get him on the Into the Impossible podcast. We'll see if that'll work out. But certainly to get Tufti on would be, uh, Tuft would be great as well. But he calls it, uh, you know, in this passage where he calls him the first uh, data scientist, he uses this passage about the Pleiades, which are also known as the Seven Sisters, or Subaru if you happen to speak Japanese. Uh, and this is a small asterism that we can see tonight from anywhere in North America uh, mm. uh, that is in the shoulder of Taurus, the bull. And these are uh, really these beautiful uh, set of stars that are young and hot and they're surrounded as as hot young Hollywood stars often are by <laughs> an entourage. And this entourage is in the form of a nebulosity, a glow. And Galileo mm. said th- uh, by observing the nebulosity, he thought that those were merely uh, unresolved stars, that his telescope was incapable of resolving.
2: <laughs> right. And right. if
1: he could resolve it, it proved that by what he calls visible certainty, we have destroyed the arguments that have for so long vexed philosophers of previous generations. So, first of all, I love that he's a physicist. Mm-hmm. Of course, he has to uh, he has to like poke fun at philosophers. Uh, go but go but it. secondly, go that that something can be proven visually is a very perilous uh, proposition, in my opinion. To what extent can we use perception? Uh, as a motivation for achieving scientific proof or consensus whatsoever. Is it not a fool's errand?
2: That's a great question because the evolutionary argument that I just gave says that the very language of our visual perception in all of our senses is the wrong language to describe objective reality if uh, that's of course taking evolution by natural selection as our starting point um, that's just a theorem of that of that theory we can of course argue about evolution by natural selection and whether we should think that there's a deeper theory but but granting evolution by natural selection as our starting point then what that theory entails is it's not simply that we maybe get the shape a little bit off or the distances a little bit wrong it's it's rather something much deeper and that is that evolution of natural selection entails that the very language of space and time and position and momentum and, and frequency and so forth is simply the wrong language to describe objective reality you couldn't pro- possibly frame a true description of objective reality in those terms now now but to your question the that is the only language in which we can actually make experimental observations that's that's what we're equipped with and so what we have to do is go ahead and do experiments and get data in the only language that we can understand but then we simply instead of assuming that that data and the way that we normally would think about that data is just the truth we have to be a little bit more clever we have to be like a person who's wearing a, a a VR headset. Who's been playing a video game, and they can they can sort of, you know, see like say it's Grand Theft Auto with a VR souped up version of it, right? And 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 you can start to ask questions like, is is the geometry of this game a Euclidean geometry? And you can start to do work with some other friends who are you know playing the game with you and do some experiments and and discover, oh well, this is a, roughly a Euclidean geometry, and and and, and do things like that. And that would be perfectly fine because that's the only data that you can get is within the language of the game. But if you think that that's going to take you to uh, an understanding of the deepest reality, which in this metaphor would be the circuits and software and voltages and magnetic fields of some hidden supercomputer that's running the game, well, you're going to be sadly mistaken and, 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 and wrong by thinking that, you know, the Euclidean geometry that you measured in the game is going to tell you something directly about the supercomputer that that that's running the game you, you have to think outside of the headset and so that's what evolution by natural selection is sort of telling us is that yeah we can only get data in the headset um, but how we interpret the data is going to re- require us to think outside of the confines of our headset outside of in fact space and time itself
1: mm. yeah and of course you know no one really made the Same impact, kind of relatively speaking, as Galileo did on the on its predecessors. Before we move off of him and onto other, you know, slightly more modern than the uh, 16th and the 17th century conceptions of of sensorial perception, I want to just remind people listening on Clubhouse that we're enjoying a conversation with renowned professor and thinker, philosopher, scholar. Uh, Professor Don Hoffman, who I'm pleased to call a colleague in this great, wonderful university that we call the University of California. Though we may be on separate campuses, we are colleagues in the world's greatest university. Uh, so, yes. Don, it's such a pleasure to be affiliated with you. I want to turn just to the last statement about Galileo. Of course, he was involved in this conception, and many of his books Actually, this is a news break for my friends listening on Clubhouse, uh, my uh, subscribers on YouTube know this already, but. Uh, For many years, Galileo's books were not available, uh, even though they were translated by our colleague or our co-university inhabitant, uh, Stillman Drake, uh, who was Mm -hmm. at UC Berkeley for many years. And these translations done by him are the definitive ones of all time, including the dialogue on two chief world systems, which uh, I always keep nearby me. And, uh, and I started to uh, to investigate this book and realized what an amazing writer Galileo is and how beautiful and lyrical he does write. And I said, well, this is great, but you know, this book is 539 pages long. I wish <laughs> I wish I could do what I did with Don Hoffman's book and listen to an audiobook version of it. Wouldn't that be cool? Turns out the audiobook version has never been made. And I uh-huh. sort of thought to myself, well, somebody's got to do this for the maestro, and, and why not let it be me. And so I yes. hooked around and I, and I found out who has permission to do this. And it was the University of California Press owns the rights to this translation. So then I thought, well, what can I do with it And uh, to make it kind of theatrical? And I said, why don't I get my friend uh, Carlo Rovelli, a previous guest on the Into the Impossible ah. podcast, and he's going to narrate it along with me and my colleague Lucio Piccirillo and maybe someone like Elena April or Andrea Ghez. We, we got to get some some women in there as well because of these Italian women, especially Elena April, if you've ever Oof. met her, or Fabiola Giannati is a hero of mine. I would just love to have an Italian woman narrate yes. The three characters. Anyway, so long. Very story cool. Short. Yeah, so I'll keep you posted on that. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's great. A labor of love, uh, maybe not uh, yeah, remuneratory uh, in the way that I would uh, prefer it. But anyway, it's not all about money. Um, but I do want to say what Galileo said is he um, he talks about a wine's good taste does not belong to the objective determination of the wine and hence of an object, even the object as an appearance but the special character is the sense in the subject who is enjoying its taste this is an yes. argument that owes to the namesake of the I don't, I don't think it's the namesake of UC Berkeley uh but George Berkeley tell me a little no. bit about George Berkeley did he not come up with these ideas that you know the moon does not exist except when you're looking at it except if you have sort of this god's eye perspective talk about Berkeley is he is he irrelevant or is he more relevant than ever
2: yes Barclay had this very interesting view uh, that everything that we perceive is in some sense just a creation of our senses uh, and that only he had a theological view. He, he ended up being a, a bishop in in the church, um, but he had this view that, you know, even if I'm not looking at a tree, it the tree exists only because it's in God's view. So God keeps things existing by being, by perceiving them. But he said, you know, to be is to be perceived uh, or or to be a perceiver. So that's a very, very different point of view than a physicalist view that says uh, to to be is to be, for example, um, something in space and time with energy and matter. Um, So that, you know, space, time, energy and matter are the fundamental natures of objective reality. And, And Barclay was saying, no, the fundamental nature of existence is being perceived or being a perceiver, which which is a very different point of view. And it was, you know, I think Barclay was partly uh, reacting against what he thought were, were the um, the advances of a uh, of a physicalist um, you know, science that was mostly materialist and, and didn't leave room perhaps for um, other uh, more spiritual ideas.
1: So when I look at uh, these, these kind of uh, initial thoughts, initial forays in that time, of course, what Galileo was railing against back in the dialogue uh, was the notion that the earth was stationary. And uh, he said, "Don't you know your, your senses tell you that you know, that it's stationary?" And it seemed like he's sort of arguing against himself because mm-hmm. sometimes they'll say the senses can teach you everything, and and you can have visible certainty. In other words, you could prove something quod demonstratum, demonstratum uh, based on visual cues and, and visual evidence. On the other hand, he could say like, "Don't trust your sensory motion perception." And I, I think it's so interesting that you connect and you mentioned this early on in the book. You talk about the grand questions, and I think of them as sort of um, chicken or egg problems. In other words, how did the universe come from non-universe? How did uh, matter come from energy? How did life come from matter? Uh, and all of which, you know, Darwin you know, sort of presupposed was was a crazy thing to ever think about. Now we know it as big bang nucleosynthesis. And then, right. lastly, how does consciousness emerge from, you know, bacteria? How do how do you go from uh, bacteria to Bach or, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, anything like that? And you talk about this survey in Science Magazine, arguably the number one or two journal in the world, 2006, asked what are the big questions for the next century. The number one, of course, I pat myself on the back, hurting my shoulder uh, was uh, what of what is the universe made? And then number two was, how does biology produce consciousness? in my yes. uh, yeah, in my expertise, at least in thinking about this, I don't know if we'll ever have an answer uh, you know of what the universe is made or what predated our universe. These are active subjects of of um, of debate and scientific inquiry. Is it true in biology that this is still considered a plausible, possible outcome that biology could predict how consciousness emerges?
2: I would say among, among my peers in cognitive neuroscience, the those who, of my colleagues, you know, they're brilliant colleagues of mine who are working on this, I would say that 95, 99% of them uh, take it for granted that consciousness. Um, In human beings and other animals, conscious experiences are a product of brain activity, Um, and we just have to figure out what kind of brain activity causes which kinds of brain experiences and uh, what kinds of conscious experiences and how that happens. I mean, there are theories, for example, that say uh, Roger Penrose, for example, and Stuart Hameroff uh, together have a theory that says that Certain structures called microtubules and neurons have certain electrons with special quantum states, and if you can get an orchestrated collapse of these quantum states, using some of uh, Penrose's ideas about gravitational collapses of, of quantum states, if you get the right orchestrated collapse of these quantum states, then that will cause conscious experiences. That's what consciousness is. Others say that no, it's more like the architecture of how information is passed through the nervous system, through through the brain. Um, certain information that's broadcast widely is going to be conscious. Information that's sort of stuck in certain parts of the architecture and isn't widely available throughout the entire system will not be conscious, but if it's broadcast widely, it will be. So this is the so-called global neuronal workspace uh, theory. Bernard Bars and other are involved in, in this. And then there's one that says, um, well, it, it's more like sort of causal computational architectures that nervous systems or, or other physical systems might have. This is integrated information theory. It says, if you have the right causal computational architecture, then, and it has something called you know, high integration of, of information, they call it phi, high integrated information, but called phi, then that will lead to, or or be conscious experience. And so, so the idea is a, a, a reductionist idea. You start with space, time, and matter, and physical objects. And then you have to show from those foundations how consciousness emerges. And and that's part of a bigger picture of, of which you're far uh, better aware than me, which is the Big Bang cosmology. And the idea is that you, at the Big Bang, there was only space, time, and energy, and matter. Um, there was no life and there was and so that took hundreds of millions maybe billions of years before life came around and then who knows how much longer after that before consciousness came around so surely it must be that consciousness emerges from space time and matter Uh, so that's why most of my colleagues are reductionist in in this way
1: perhaps the adjacency of the problem uh, often comes up in what I do, which is sometimes works to our detriment. And I'll say, you know, we do get this sort of fear or concern, for lack of a better word, that you have, uh, you know, being too close to the woo-woo side of things and, and science right. is never a good, a good thing. And in fact, you know, I was going to play a game with you, but I don't have time to do it, which would be, you know, what I call high and low, where we take the highest verified review on Amazon of this book and the lowest verified review on uh, Amazon and we compare them and uh, but I, I'll spare you it but the but the problem is the, the lowest re- I mean it's got five hundred five five star reviews the only you know one star review that I can find that really you know is kind of criticizing it says well well really you have Deepak Chopra I guess on the printed book I listened to the audiobook version but the printed book has you know, Deepak Chopra's endorsement and I know you guys have worked together he's been a guest on my show two or three times uh, already and uh, he's also contributed to the endorsement Encomia on a book uh, by uh, Frank Wilczek, who you may know, won the Nobel Prize in 2014, and these are, and he's commented on his book. So, uh, so the the criticism is, oh, how could you have Deepak Chopra? I, I don't know if the guy even read it, um, but but the bottom line is, is is it sometimes the case that these that these books are too close to maybe science fiction or this notion of the mind of God? understand the mind of God. I've seen this a lot with, even in this book, you know, to give the, uh, the devil his due, uh, whoever wrote that one star review, a a plethora of references to the matrix. I see that in many books, including Galileo's error, this book by Goff that we might get a chance to talk about. Um, so what do you think? this and the notion that comes usually concomitantly with it of panpsychism which is uh maybe you could describe what is panpsychism
2: is it woo is it woo woo adjacent (laughs) what do you think right well this is a very important question and the the one thing i would say is that you know as scientists uh, we get our ideas in many many different places casual conversations, a glass of beer, reading a paper. It's it's all over the place. But what we do as scientists is we then take them and we have to be very precise in writing them down as mathematical uh, precise theories and then we go test them so so my attitude is i mean i, I talk with people from from all sorts of areas and all sorts of you know, religious and scientific fields and i get ideas wherever i i can and of course i'm i'm critical of the ideas i'm critical of my own ideas my, you know that's just the way science works so get your ideas wherever you want to what makes science different is that no matter where you get the ideas now you've got to make them mathematically precise you've got to make testable predictions and then you've got to go out and test them so that's where you get away from the woo it doesn't matter where you get the ideas the question is what do you do with them and how rigorously do you frame them and test them once you've gotten them and so that's that's the key the key point for me now in panpsychism the the reason why panpsychism and several other ideas have been starting to catch favor among cognitive neuroscientists and philosophers studying consciousness is that uh The physicalist approach, uh, even though it seems to be well motivated by the standard reductionist framework in which space-time is fundamental, it started at the Big Bang and so forth, it, it seems to have all the right pedigree and the right framework, we've not been able to solve a single specific conscious experience. All the theories I gave you, orchestrated collapse of microtubules, integrated information theory, global workspace. If you ask these brilliant researchers, some of them are good friends of mine, Mm -hmm. just ask them as I do sometimes on stage at at conferences. Great, great theory. So what what specific experience can you tell me? What's the integrated information for the taste of vanilla or the smell of chocolate or or whatever you want? And they can't give one. So the, the weird thing about it is that uh, no physicalist theory of consciousness to date can't explain even one specific conscious experience and say, this is the particular causal computational architecture, the right integrated information that must be the taste of vanilla. It could not be the the taste of chocolate. And these are the exact reasons why. And if you made this particular change to the causal architecture, it would necessarily change it into the smell of a rose. There's just nothing like that on the table. And and, and the hard thing is that, that it's not like we go, oh, well, but we can see how we could do it. We actually don't see how we could make that connection. How are you going to go from a causal computational architecture or a global you know, broadcasting to that must be the, the smell of, of a rose? How do you do that without a big leap? And so that's been a, a big, big problem. So this is then that was one thing that led me to begin to question the whole reductionist framework and to ask evolution. I mean. Is that, you know, maybe space, time and and matter and objects aren't the fundamental nature of reality. And an evolution come back, comes back and says they aren't. That's the wrong language. But in panpsychism now, what we have is a move to try to come at things at a different tack. The idea is if you can't boot up consciousness from space, time and matter, maybe you can somehow get consciousness coming in as a primary concept now it there's two ways that this is done one is a a, a monist way in which you say okay let's just start with consciousness as the only thing that there is so we have a mathematical model of consciousness on its own terms and we have to then show how space time and matter emerge or you can have a more of a a, of a dualist kind of version where you say let's let's say that there's um physical stuff and and a structure and also consciousness and have them somehow interact Uh, the way panpsychists work is they There are many versions of it, so I'll I'll pick the one that I think is the the most common version. It it says, look, um, physics gives us these equations for how matter operates and how the world works, but it doesn't tell us what's inside the equations. It's just it's just how things operate, but it doesn't tell us what the intrinsic nature of those things is. So maybe when we talk about the wave equation of an electron, maybe that you know that equation is just how something behaves, but it's not telling us what it is that behaves. What is an electron really or what's inside the electron? And so panpsychist says, well, maybe there's some consciousness there. Maybe what's really going on inside electron is that there's some consciousness. And so so the idea is that the certain particles or certain combinations of particles like maybe uh, a, a new a neutron which has you know three quarks in it that that might be conscious as well so quarks are conscious or have consciousness three quarks together can make a proton or a neutron and and those are conscious but some combinations like the things that go into making a rock maybe that's the wrong kind of combination and so a rock isn't conscious and so so the idea there is to you know, it can be run in a dualist version. Sometimes they call it a neutral monist version. It's it's a little slippery. Uh, I, I tend to think of it somewhat as as dualist, but, but I think others who are panpsychists might disagree. But the key point is that there's, you take the laws of physics and where you find an entity like an electron or a proton or something like that, you can put consciousness as the intrinsic thing that's actually being governed by those equations. Uh, now, I myself am not a panpsychist. I, I don't think that that approach, at least the one I just described, is is radical enough. I, I think that. There are good reasons, on physics grounds, to think that space-time itself is doomed. That space-time is not fundamental. That that physics, even if they are not interested in consciousness per se, um, that physics itself has to look for something deeper than space-time. And this is work by Nimar Arkani-Hamed and and other physicists who who will give arguments from you know gravity and this interaction with quantum theory that that say that, you know, you, you there are no local observables in space time um there's just no it, it cannot be fundamental and they're looking for deeper structures they're finding things like an amplohedron the cosmological polytopes that are deeper structures that that have no Hilbert spaces so there's no quantum theory they have no locality uh, you know, uh, no Lorentz invariants uh, themselves so they don't care about locality and space-time but they nevertheless they have deep structures that can give rise to for example scattering amplitudes they can predict scattering amplitudes and they can they can can be projected into space time and show you how you get locality and unitarity. So, so, so the, the, the panpsychist views I think are, are too limited. They, they typically take the current space time laws of physics as foundational and are trying to stick consciousness into the interstices there. And uh, I think the physicists themselves are telling us when they're going for things like the amplituhedron, look, there's a whole new level of, of logic and, and structure that we need to look for outside of space time.
1: Yeah, I should say, of course, uh, to listeners. So we're talking with Professor Donald Hoffman, renowned philosopher, cognitive scientist and uh, deep thinker, author of the current book we're talking about today is The Case Against Reality. Uh, which makes astonishing claims not unrelated to the astonishing hypothesis of Francis Crick, to which we will soon turn. Uh, I do want to see if there are any questions uh, first in Clubhouse. I see there's at least one hand that is raised and maybe two. So let's get them up on stage. Cami. if you could get them up there. So, Don, we're going to put the phone up to, uh, to the microphone okay. and uh, we'll take a question first from Heron. Heron, do you have a question for Dr. Hoffman?
0: well it wasn't actually a question it was just a quick uh, observation if that's acceptable sure if it's
1: quick yeah uh as i see it i only have available to me my immediate sensory experience and stories about
2: my immediate sensory experience the very idea of reality is a linguistic construction, is a story, an attempt to make sense of my sensory experience, which is completely mysterious. All the theories
0: that talk about perception and that are being something outside responsible
2: for constructing my perception, those are stories. And they may be interesting stories and even useful stories, but they're no more than stories. Reality is a story. I'll leave it at that. Any reaction, Don? Yes. Uh, None of us knows for sure what objective reality might be, and and... There is some. Uh, there are some philosophers like Immanuel Kant who said, "Look, there's the noumena and the phenomena. The phenomena, of what we can experience, what we can measure, what we can do empirical science with, and the noumena." He, Kant, at least in some interpretations of Kant, said um, it, that's the objective reality. But there's nothing that really we can say about it. It's beyond um, the realm of what we can do, you know, science about. And of course, for for scientists, you know, uh, I want to try to give a theory of objective reality. I want that's what we do. Is we we tend to be uh, realist about our theories in the sense that we're we're proposing things that we think might be true descriptions of of objective reality um kant might be right there may the noumena the the reality um may be beyond anything that humans can ever uh, approach and there's a a a book by jan westerhoff um, uh, which uh where he makes an argument there there is no objective reality uh so so But I myself, um, in the framework of uh, evolution by natural selection, that theory does posit an objective reality as part of the framework of the theory, and payoff functions are mappings from that objective reality into payoff values. And so in that framework, what I can say is if there is some kind of objective reality and it has some structure, then... Evolution by natural selection, that theory entails the probability of zero that we see any of that structure. Now, that doesn't entail, though, that we don't have the conceptual systems to try to think outside of our sensory headset, right? The the virtual reality that evolution gave us. We may have the conceptual capacity to think outside of the box of our senses and try to get, um, you know, understandings of the structure of objective reality just like for example i can't imagine a specific color i've never seen before right if you say if i ask you think of a specific color imagine a concrete color that you've never seen before well i mean nothing happens i, I smoke comes out of my ears nothing happens and and yet i do have the conceptual capacity to imagine that there could be colors that i could never see and to imagine for example if i'm a, a male dichromat that maybe these people that that are trichromats maybe they They really are seeing colors that I could never even concretely imagine, and so so it's it's certainly it seems legitimate to say that even though my sensory system can't reveal this thing to me directly, my cognitive systems can help me go where my senses might fail. And so I think a lot of scientists take that attitude about this thing. Mm. But but my answer and bottom line is who knows what reality is, right? Even if our theories work and pass every test, it doesn't mean they're right. So we can never know for sure if we've got it.
1: That's right. And I want to turn to that next, uh, especially this notion of ITP. <clears throat> which, uh, is in, stands for interface theory of perception, which, uh, which is something that, that you coined. And I, I want to understand how we can, we can think of it. When you say interface, you literally mean a type of interface. And, and the question is in, in what way is it a description of reality is what way is it an analogy, which I'm not even denying the validity or necessity of an analogy in this case, but to what extent is it real? I mean, the, we'll get to Nima and, and stuff later, who hopefully will be coming on the podcast shortly. Um, but the, the question of of you know is it an analogy which has utility to help us visualize things or is it itself this infinite turtles all the way down and and you're just like substituting one uh, description of something uh, mm-hmm. undescribable for another.
2: Well, I would say first if I just think in terms of the framework of evolution by natural selection just the the logical framework of that theory what that theory entails is that there it it assumes that there's an objective reality it assumes that there are organisms that uh, are being shaped uh, with sensory systems and the theory then says that it's a, a theorem of that theory that the sensory systems will not ever reveal true structures of that objective reality instead they will give you sensory systems that serve only as guides to adaptive behavior Mm. so you're not the, the whole point is not to see the truth the whole point is to stay alive long enough to reproduce that's that's so that's the structure of evolutionary theory so so once you understand that sensory systems are not windows on the truth they're merely guides to adaptive behavior then then I say, well, well, you know, people then ask, well, how, how could that possibly be? You know, help me understand. And I think that's when the metaphor of a virtual reality headset or a user interface on your laptop. Those are the kinds of metaphors, I think, help us to understand what the mathematics of evolution is, is, is telling us. Like when you use your laptop, you're writing a paper or a book or something like that. And the icon for the book on your desktop is blue and rectangular in the middle of your screen. It doesn't mean that the book in the computer is blue and rectangular in the middle of your computer somehow. I mean, there's no mapping like that between your senses and the objective reality. Instead, what you see on your laptop hides the truth. And that's why it's valuable. You don't want to see the voltages and magnetic fields and the circuits and software. I mean, if you had right. to toggle voltages to write your book, good luck. You'd, you'd never finish <laughs> your book. And, right. and so that's what evolution did. It, it gives us a user interface. Now, now that part is, now I'm just using a metaphor I mean, yes. for whatever what evolution has given us. But it's given us a user interface that hides the truth, but lets us control the truth, whatever that truth might be. In a simple way, using simple user interface uh, icons.
1: And you know, when I think about that um, that that fruitful metaphor that you're using, I, I can't help but escape the fact that we are talking on Clubhouse simultaneously. Uh, friends are tweeting out it will be recorded on uh, on YouTube. It will have a uh, it will have a, a lifelong presence, perhaps uh, forever. But you know, there's a distinction. I hope to get you on. Uh, on, on Clubhouse, by the end of this conversation, or teach you how to get on, as I have sure. with so many people before, because so many people did it for me. But what's nice about Clubhouse is it's purely audio, so you just drop in, listen. I'm going to take more questions. Uh, we're speaking with Professor Donald Hoffman, you see, Irvine friend and colleague, and uh, and, and and really a, a titan of this field with novel, innovative, and testable ideas, and that's what I think is so draws me to what you do. And and we might disagree about you know certain aspects of it, but of course you are. Uh, far more eminent in this domain but what's interesting about Clubhouse is that it's a very low bandwidth thing I mean only I can talk or only you can talk or only one of my uh, the people that are up on stage or soon will be can talk so it's it's a single channel so to speak whereas Twitter we can read really fast we can perceive information really fast mm-hmm. read hundreds of words per minute I always say like some of the people probably some people that are listening to us right now wish there was a 2x speed uh, for Clubhouse the way there is for uh, listening to podcasts uh, but you and I speak pretty quickly so uh, I, think, I, think, I think we're doing okay but um, but the bottom line is Clubhouse acts as a filter in a certain sense and mm-hmm. it is almost as important what information we choose to discard as the information that we choose to get past the filter and so you're arguing that evolution has designed adaptive filters we call them PID proportional integral derivative feedback circuits etc but there's always a lossiness to any filtration system and I wonder in the evolution evolutionary framework. Um, you know, there are some things that it's clear that we derive pleasure from them, but it's not clear that it's a fitness boosting as a metric. Uh, for example, music. When I'm listening to music, I'm perceiving there's tons of things that are going on uh, or, or and I smell a smell that might be more easy to see what the purpose is, because maybe it reminds me that it's dangerous to ingest that. But where there's music, where it doesn't seem like there's a fitness payoff in the human, ca- I, I agree in birds and whales, probably, I don't know, I'm not a biologist. Uh, But but the point is, what is the purpose, evolutionarily speaking, of this most august, you know, kind of uh, uh, trait of the human species to make music for no purpose whatsoever? It seemed biologically wasteful, at least from a novice perspective like mine.
2: Right. Uh Right. so, evolutionary psychologists have thought a lot about this. Uh, Steven Pinker has has got some good ideas. He calls uh, music um, auditory cheesecake. Mm-hmm. It's you know something that uh, you know, cheesecake sort of hits our senses in a very very strong way. All the positive things, right? We, in some sense, in the case of taste, we you know. Fatty foods are really good for us. They have high calories. Sugary foods are, are really good for us. They, we, we need the energy and so forth. And in during the Pleistocene, it was hard for us to get these things. And so if we find a food like cheesecake that has all of them, um, you would never find perhaps cheesecake during the Pleistocene. But now that we can make it, it hits all the things that were shaped by evolution during the Pleistocene. And so so we go for it. So in the case of auditory stuff, um, we do use auditory information to tell us, um, for example, who's attractive. Some people's voices um, are more attractive than others, and that will have some correlation with the reproductive fitness of that person. Um, so, you know, the, the voice of a 99-year-old um, has certain qualities to it that are different from the voice of a 21-year-old, and we pick up on those qualities, and we can infer something about the age of the person. And that, in terms of reproductive potential, then leads to certain you know, attraction or, or not. And so those kinds of arguments can can be given for why we find certain patterns of auditory um, stimulation more attractive than others because they in the past and in the present are, are correlated with um with reproductive potential and 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 fitness enhancement so in music now what, what happens is just like with with you know cheesecake you start to someone figures out to, how to put all these wonderful ingredients together and you get something that you would never perhaps ever heard in nature uh, but now it's like cheesecake which would never exist in nature until we put all these ingredients together so that's That may be one aspect of it, but there may be more also to music in the sense of a social joint, um, cooperative, and bonding experience that comes from music you know, so so again you know tribes in our evolutionary past often when they went out to hunt or fight would have some kind of um chanting or music together so it could be a bonding thing so so i would say that from an evolutionary point of view from evolutionary psychology the, the kind of question that you you asked brian is is you know, a, a non-trivial one but we we have ideas about how to try to come to rigorous answers mm-hmm.
1: yeah um, so now now, I want to take another question uh, from the audience. I have a friend of mine, Mark Lovett, who is a, uh, a very deep thinker. He is up in the, on the stage in Clubhouse. Mark, do you have a, a comment or question for Dr. Hoffman? How are humans supposed to interact with, you know, the real quote-unquote world if our memory is so flawed and our ability to comprehend reality um, just doesn't work so well? That would be my question.
2: Great, great question, and 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 I would say, um, my my own attitude is is, I I certainly agree that we don't see reality as it is that our beliefs are not necessarily the truth, and I take that as a welcome wake up. I I don't find it discouraging at all. It's it's, a wonderful realization. It's it's like someone that's had a VR headset on all their life and and they thought that the virtual world that they were in was the. fundamental reality and you finally tell them, you know what, everything that you've seen is just a virtual reality headset and I'm, I'm about to take the headset off, well, that's that's good news. So, science has the tools to try to go beyond just what our senses tell us. Um, and, and so, I think that, you know, we can never know if we've succeeded but we don't have to give up. So I think this is a, a fabulous time actually in the sciences. Science, I would say from this point of view, from an evolutionary point of view, for the, since Galileo, we've been sharpening our tools by understanding our headset. So we've really learned how to use experimental and mathematical tools. We've studied our headset. We We really have done it so well that our theories are now so good, evolution of natural selection, quantum field theory and gravity are so good that they tell us space-time is not fundamental. They're telling us you've been studying the headset. That's an incredible vindication of science. It's telling us that even though you assumed that you were looking at the truth, uh, you're not. You're just looking at a headset. But now use those same tools to try to come up with theories beyond space and time. And the way that you test those ideas is to take Make them mathematically precise. So like what Nima is doing with the with his structures outside of space time like you know, the amplitude or something like that make them mathematically rigorous show exactly how they project into space time and see the predictions that they make there and if you can then you can test them you can you only see things in your headset so that's where the experiments have to be done in your headset but you can still test models outside the headset as long as you have a mathematical model about how they project into the headset so that's what science is now going to be up to we're taking our first forays out of our headset out of Space and time, and science is up to the task. So, this is a for me an exciting opportunity and, and, and not a time to be um, discouraged.
1: Mm, very good. Uh, question from uh, my friend and collaborator in all things. I should point out, by the way, Don, do you know that Galileo actually invented an actual VR or AR headset, which was a uh, type of uh, chronograph? that was based on a telescope, a telescope looking at the moons of Jupiter. So you'd wear this helmet and you'd look at the moons of Jupiter and it would have a telescope built into it and you'd augment your reality or vision in this case and you'd be able to see the moons and this is a huge problem back in the 1600s to tell time and in fact he was impelled by the desire that impels many of us professors to make money and to capitalize on—no, I'm just kidding. Uh, we're not all Don. I, I shouldn't—I shouldn't accuse him of my own venal motivations. But, but Galileo <laughs> had this uh, VR headset that he put on that had a telescope, and uh, he didn't win the longitude prize, but uh, but eventually uh, it, was per, it was it was it was and is used to do many other, some say more important things like test and measure the speed of light and its constancy throughout our solar system. Uh, I didn't from, know that. That's wonderful. Yeah. Question from uh, Max Abitbol, who's a colleague of mine, Dr. Max. Would you like to ask uh, Dr. Hoffman a question?
2: Was, is consciousness a unique filter into reality, or is it just our filter? Well, so... The answer is I don't know, but I can just tell you how I'm, I'm thinking about this. Um, in cognitive neuroscience, we have this problem of consciousness. We call it the hard problem of consciousness, which is how our, our experience of, you know, taste of chocolate, smell of garlic, uh, sound of a trumpet, how is, are these conscious experiences related to neural activity in the brain or perhaps to circuits and software in an AI system? And we've come up empty, trying to start with the physical system to build up consciousness. We've just come up empty. We can't. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying we can't do it, but we, we've had very, very bright people, including Nobel Prize winners, many of them, working on this, and we've come up empty so far. And and it, it seems to me to be principled that we can't start with space, time, and matter and boot up consciousness. And so there's two responses. One is to say, well, there's no such thing as consciousness. It's just an illusion. So dan dennett and keith frankish will say this and of course then they have to explain how the illusion of consciousness arises right so how do i what is the brain activity that causes the illusion of the taste of vanilla so there is no such thing as the conscious experience of the taste of of vanilla but nevertheless somehow our brain has duped us into having the illusion of the taste of vanilla so they still owe us a mathematically precise theory about what are the neural processes precisely that lead to the illusion of the taste of vanilla and why those processes could not be the illusion of the sound of a trumpet. So, And and there's nothing there yet. But there's, and the other approach I'm taking, um, now to get to your question, I, I don't view consciousness as a filter, but I'm saying if, if I don't start with space-time and matter, maybe I can start with consciousness, not as an emergent property of space-time, but as an entity that I want to m- mathematically model on its own terms. So I want a simple... Mathematical structure that I claim captures everything there is to claim to, to capture fundamentally about consciousness, and I want to look then at the mathematical implications of that formalism, and then show that somehow there's this di- dynamics of consciousness, and that can give rise to space-time. So space-time is not fundamental in any sense, and and scale structure in space-time is in no way fundamental to consciousness that consciousness itself is fundamental my attitude is very much like turing when when he was trying to come up with a theory of computation right computation is a wild and wooly enterprise there's traveling salesman problem computing pi there's np complete problem there's tons of stuff in computation turing managed to find this drop-dead trivial formalism a finite set of states a halt state a start state a set of transition rules and and that turned out to be enough to you know, have the church-turing thesis, anything that's computable can be computed by a Turing machine. I want the same thing for consciousness, a, a minimal formalism that um, has combinatorial properties that can allow me to build a theory of anything that I want to have about consciousness. The self, learning, memory, problem-solving, intelligence. I want to build all those things from a, a, a stripped-down version of consciousness. So that's the attitude in which I'm thinking about it. Consciousness, from this point of view, isn't like just a filter. It's the whole thing. Mm. Um, Now, again, I'm probably wrong, but I'm just telling you the strategy that I'm taking. I don't want to start with space, time, and matter because that doesn't seem to work. So let me start with consciousness and see if I can boot that up.
1: Mm. So, yeah, I should say I had uh, – who was that? um, not yet, and in just a minute. Yeah, hold on a second. Um, thanks, Neil. Um, so yeah, speaking of Ch- uh, of Turing, we had on uh, Noam Chomsky on the Into the Impossible podcast over the summer, mm. and Noam was saying uh, things, you know, that uh, you know Turing uh-huh. considered certain questions such as you know can machines think is like utterly ridiculous, and that brings up one of these notions that I want to talk to you about, which is you know this this notion of increasing compu- uh, computational ability, quantum computing, etc. Mm-hmm. Whereas Nima's uh, theories, and he hasn't. Uh, he has agreed to come on the end the Impossible podcast, and we'll talk to him about this. Uh, his his theories. I would say are, of course, he's he's incredibly brilliant, very creative and inventive, but they're by no means mainstream. They're by no means accepted at the same level of most of the other physics content of this book, The Case Against Reality. So, I just want to caution people that because Nima is conjecturing, it doesn't necessarily mean it's it's established fact or even That's accepted right. by. Even a majority of physicists, even though it has it has some promise, and and I would say you know there are alternatives: loop quantum gravity, even string theory, et cetera, right. that are trying to parameterize the the uh, fundamental you know d- dichotomy between uh, space time as fundamental or emergent. Um, a primitive or, or somehow elementary versus not being so. So but the question I have is about uh, conscious computers. So uh, not only, right. let's just skip Turing and say, Chomsky's wrong, Turing's, uh, you know, can computers be conscious if, if, if uh, I don't see why not, according, you know, at least if, if I put on my naive panpsychism hat, I don't know why not, anything, you know, just Silicon and, and uh, or uh, Joseph's injunctions or whatever. So can they be conscious and if they are, and if we are you know, somehow a virtual perce- perception or, or perceiving entities, uh, then who's to say that we're not simulated, as, as people have, have conjectured? And, and I'm sure that will generate some follow-up questions from, from the audience. Yeah, so
2: go ahead. Yeah, great question. So there are a couple of frameworks to try to answer that. Uh, in a physicalist framework, so space, time, and matter are fundamental, then the attitude is that, of course, machines can be conscious. The brain is a machine and it's conscious. So, so we have a firsthand uh, example. So Searle uh, J- J- at uh, UC Berkeley has made that argument. And I think uh, 99% of my colleagues in cognitive neuroscience say, of course, right? Brains are machines. They're carbon-based machines, not silicon-based machines, but they're machines, and they create consciousness, and we just have to work out how, how it's done. And, and they may be right, that, so in that case, yes. And if that's true, then I would say absolutely. If carbon-based machines can create consciousness, then then certainly there's nothing against silicon-based machines. Now, I've argued, though, that there's principled reasons why you can't start with uh, inanimate matter and boot up consciousness, so that I, th- I think it just can't be done, and that the whole Big Bang... M- Cosmology has to be rethought in in that regard, and maybe start with consciousness being fundamental. Now, in the case of panpsychism, uh, once again, the panpsychism has consciousness in some sense being fundamental. It's not derived from matter, but it's sort of the heart. Of, of matter it's it's the uh, it, to use hawking's phrase it's the the fire inside the equations right that that it, that's the, that's what consciousness is so in that sense surely the right kinds of machines will have the right kinds of panpsychic consciousness so th- that's a second framework in which you can can think about it the wrong kind of machine is a rock right it has the wrong kind of architecture so the combinatorial way in which atoms Combined to make a rock is not the right kind of combinatorics to have the rock have its own special consciousness of its own kind that's above and beyond all the consciousnesses of the particles. So that's the sort of the combination issue that comes up in panpsychism. Certain combinations will have consciousness associated with them, others will not, and so you have to be precise about that. And and, and panpsychists are, are are struggling to to do that. In the framework that I'm working on, consciousness is fundamental. Um, so. It's not arising in any way from physics. Instead, physics in space-time is just the headset that certain consciousnesses use. So the the metaphor I like to give is uh, the Twitterverse, the vast social network of interacting um, agents in the Twitterverse. There's tens of millions of users, billions of tweets. Uh, There's no way that any Twitter user can grapple with the whole thing and read all the tweets. So we have visualization tools for vast social data that's overwhelming. We have visualization tools. And so in in this view in which I'm proposing that ultimate reality is a vast social network of interacting consciousnesses, like the Twitterverse, so that's the fundamental reality, then space-time is just one headset – one kind of data structure one visualization tool that certain of the agents use to help them grok or interact with other agents now once we under if if we think about it that way i need to write down a mathematical model of of the dynamics of these agents of the headset the mapping of the dynamics of conscious agents into the headset once i've done that Then we can try to reverse engineer that mapping and say, the headset is there to give me contact with certain conscious agents or to give me trends about what these conscious agents are doing, just like you get trends in in Twitter. So the question would be, could I, once I know how this space-time headset works, can I open new portals in that? headset to new consciousnesses and with some of those portals the technology needed to make those portals look like silicon and circuits and my answer is probably i mean it's probably possible once we understand the headset we can reverse engineer it right right now my headset when i see your face i've got a portal into your consciousness fallible but genuine portal into your consciousness so we know that this headset under this framework gives us portals into consciousness could we have a precise enough understanding of this headset and of its relationship to conscious agents that we could reverse engineer it i think yes and i think some of the technology may look like uh, artificial intelligence mm-hmm. but we wouldn't be doing it in a reductionist framework we're not starting with circuits and software that are unconscious and booting up consciousness we're starting with consciousness and a headset that's been constructed by conscious agents we're reverse engineering it to open up new portals to other conscious agents so it's a completely different framework we
1: talk a lot in the book about experience mm-hmm. and. The, I've been thinking about a quote I heard from Sam Harris once, which was, which is something to do with, um, you know, that the most valuable quantity in life isn't time, you know, because time we waste. Uh, everyone says, you know, money is so valuable. No, you can make money back. But you can't make time back. You know, if I ask you, right. Don, you know, could you, would you like to trade this last two hours of, of your generosity? You'd probably say, yeah, give me that back. I'd love to have that time back to play with my uh, my friends and do whatever I want. But, but in reality, right. it's actually, according to Sam Harris, it's attention. Right, so you have a certain amount of attention, and that's the most conserved quantity because we all have time to mm-hmm. watch. You know, Lord knows, I've watched a lot of cat videos, but I've been thinking a lot about it, <laughs> and I and I can't I can't help but ask you in, in the remaining minutes before we wrap up. Um, and I want to ask you something. It, it, I actually think the most valuable, precious commodity is innocence, because mm. I have a bunch of kids, and, and I'm, I'm so um, amazed by their learning and their growth every day. And when I see something like time or even attention. Uh, it's, it's reversible in the sense that like, okay, so you could rejuvenate if you're really drained or, 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 okay, so you, so you did all this, you wasted all this time, you know, eating and watching the Super Bowl but now you can go for a run. But in a sense, you really can't, you really can't get back. And, and I see that. And I've talked right. to, I've talked to men who've gone to war and, and, and mm. how to take lives of the enemy. And they said they, yeah. they can never undo that. And, th- and that was the biggest loss of their innocence. It wasn't the drugs that they did. It was, And so I caution people. Um, and I've had yeah, addicts right. on the show and I've had people uh, that really opened up in ways I never thought. I was talking about physics. All of a sudden this guy tells me that you know he's had to kill people in his life in mm. service of his country. And it breaks my heart because I know he's right. a good soul. And I'm not condemning it at all. Uh, right. And there are listeners right now in this room who have been to war. And, and then I, I've i heard people that have been drug addicts. And, and I, I know that the last comment, you know, is not maybe, you know, to do anything really hurt yourself, but is there irreversibility? I mean, am I doing some sort of child abuse to my kids? And I, I actually just tell them, I'm like, you do these drugs, it's, it's irreversible. And I'm talking about my experience, my children, my experience, in my life, mm-hmm. there are things that, you know, we always talk about how, you know, well, I wouldn't have been the person I was today if X, Y, and Z didn't happen to me. And actually I've, I've looked at this and, all the guests I've had on 116 guests, now 117 with (laughs) Don's gracing us on the, on the podcast. Uh, But, uh, but, you know, thinking about, you know, kind of the experiences and yeah, I wouldn't trade anything. I wouldn't, you know, I I am the result of all my experiences in a certain sense. But again, I'm just asking Don, you know, from a, from a neurochemical perspective, uh, are there, is there, you know, a possibility that, that certain drugs are not um, are one-way ratchets and paws in the, in the Feynmanian sense that it can only go in one direction and people like me perhaps uh, shouldn't shouldn't try it uh, by the way I might have a more addictive personality uh, I know right. I have addiction to food and I'm addicted to love mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. but but the point I'm trying to make Don, is is there, are there drug experiences that you really can't come back from
2: uh, yes, I, I think that there are some, of course, that are that may open your mind and be harmless, and others that could be irre- irreversible. And there's going to be individual differences. So you know, you are taking a, a chance, just like if you have dinner and, and eat mushrooms, you're taking a chance too, right? Mm-hmm. So some, I mean, some friends that uh, eating a mushroom is fine for me, but for them, it's it's irreversible. So so there are we we are taking these chances. I, I think you know having a hit of marijuana is probably not going to, if I did that, it sure. would, it would have no long-term effects on me. And my, the benefits may outweigh the, the, the risks. Um, and I, I have good friends who have done many, many trips on, on five and, uh, are you know, are, are psychonauts. They, they just really go out there and they come back and they tell me all sorts of interesting things. And right now, my attitude is, um, I, I hear what you're saying and, uh, uh, you know, I don't need to go there right now myself to do the work that I'm doing that's trying to put um, structure and and um, mathematical understanding to the kinds of things that you're, you're talking about. Um, but, you know, others disagree. Uh, you know, my good friend Annika Harris um, suggests yeah. that I would be in better shape if, you know, and better able to move forward on, on these ideas if I had firsthand experience. Mm. Um, I do, I should say, I do meditate quite a bit. I've mm. meditated for 18 years, and so I do let go of all thought, I go into silence, and I do explore outside of the geeky realm in, in that way. Um, and But there, I don't feel like I'm very much in danger of injuring my brain.
1: Mm-hmm. Very good. So I'm gonna need to wrap it up um, in just a second or two. I wanna just reiterate, we're talking to Dr. Donald Hoffman, who's a professor at UC Irvine, just up the road, and, uh, and, and really an influence. Um, and so, uh, so I want to just finish up with uh, just one of the questions that I normally ask my uh, my guests who honor me by their presence, and uh, and that is, you know, sort of advice to your former self. The name of this podcast, mm. the Into the Impossible mm. Podcast, and that comes from Arthur C. Clarke, who you quote in this book. The very famous line: "Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic." And that is yes. uh, how I open every one of these podcasts. As you'll find mm. out when you listen to the audio version of it. Uh, his second law is that for every expert, there's an equal and opposite expert. And his third <laughs> law, and we all know that in the faculty club, I love to sure. I love to drop that little humdinger on people. Uh, but the, uh, the last uh, law that uh, derives uh, the, the, the der- derivation of the name of this podcast is the only way of determining the limits of the possible is to venture beyond them. Into Mm -hmm. the impossible. I want to ask you, Don, advice to your former self. Um, If you could go back in time and tell a 20 year old, 30 year old Donald Hoffman one piece of advice that would give him the courage to venture into the impossible as you have done, maybe enabling something new er, at an earlier phase in in your life, what would that piece of wisdom or advice be?
2: Well, I'd tell myself a couple of things because I think there's a couple of things I needed to know that I didn't know. One is um, listen to authorities, but be willing after you've really studied them to argue against them vociferously. So don't don't be stupid and, and not listen. Listen, but then have the confidence to argue against them. And second, learn as much mathematics as you possibly can.
1: <laughs>
2: right. I mean that's that is for 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 a theorist, um, Translating your abstract ideas into something that you can really use and make predictions from is, is a precious gift. Right now, I, I have to work with mathematicians who who are kind enough to collaborate with me and and deal with my you know, relative lack of mathematical expertise. So I have good collaborators. I would love to – I would have gone back and said – You'll get a master's degree, at least in mathematics while you're doing all this other stuff. So you'll have so you can work more on your own on the mathematical side. So so be brave. Of course, listen to the experts, but then go and follow your own dreams and your own ideas, um, but also be humble about it. Right. You know. Don't be dog-headed and dogmatic about it. That's the, I mean, that's how you stop inquiry. So be dogmatic about nothing, be open about everything, and learn mathematics.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Very good. I think that'll be the title of the show. I want to thank everybody, but especially I want to thank Dr. Donald Hoffman. Um, pleased and proud to have you as a colleague in the University of California system. Please find his TED Talk on YouTube. It's got 1.57 million views uh, on just YouTube alone. Find his website, find his book, The Case Against Reality, which is so fascinating. Uh, I really found so much in there that I just could talk to you for hours. What I want to do next is have a conversation with you and Nima Akani-Hamed, who will uh, hopefully, we won't team up too much against you as physicists. But then we'd have on your side, we'll have maybe uh, Dr. Stuart Hammer. I don't know. We'll convene a big thing. If people on Clubhouse think it's cool, let's do it.
2: I would thank you, Brian. I would love to talk with him. I haven't contacted him because I didn't want to waste his time. I'm reading his stuff. He taught a class at Harvard in fall of 2019. I have myself personally translated transcribed 17 of his lectures. I'm learning his stuff. That's how serious I'm about learning his stuff, and because I, you know, I, I'm really taken with his work. But I wanted to really understand his work at a deeper level before I wasted his time. But I would love to talk with him. All
1: right. Well, I'll get him on my show first, and then we'll get you both together. So please tune yeah. in on YouTube, Dr. Brian Keating. Subscribe uh, to the Into the Impossible podcast wherever you get it. Don, have a wonderful weekend. Thank you so much for joining us and going into the impossible.
2: Thank you, Brian. My pleasure.
0: Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Hello, I'm Stuart Volco, producer of Into the Impossible. If you enjoyed this episode with Professor Brian Keating, please let us know by subscribing, commenting, sharing, and most importantly, rating and leaving reviews. It really helps keep our universe expanding. We appreciate hearing from you and read every review and comment. And we're always open to your suggestions for future episodes. Watch our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating, Dr. Brian Keating. And join our premieres every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific time for live chats. Follow Brian on Twitter, Medium, and support us on Patreon at Dr. Brian Keating. That's D.R. Brian Keating. For free access to exclusive content, please visit Professor Keating's website and sign up for his informative newsletter at briankeating.com. Into the Impossible is produced with the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Eric Viri, Director. Brian Keating, Co-Director. Patrick Coleman, Associate Director. Produced by Stuart Volco and Brian Keating. For more information on the Arthur C. Clarke Center, go to imagination.ucsd.edu.